All right, would you stand with me as we read our passage of Scripture today? We're in the middle, actually near the end of the Gospel of John, and we come to the middle of chapter 16 today. Chapter 16, starting with verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us, a little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me, and because I'm going to the Father. Verse 18. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What, What I meant by saying, a little while, and you will not see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. Verse 25. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say that you will ask the Father on your behalf, that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's my pleasure this morning to introduce to you a friend of mine who is coming to speak and share, exposit this passage for us. His name is Tim Schoenfeld. He is a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Belmont University. So I guess I need to call you Dr. Tim Schoenfeld now. Um, He's just a humble guy and just always introduces himself as Tim. But uh, Tim and his wife, Elizabeth, have uh, been members of our body for several years. Um, They've been leading a a city group um, and are going to be continuing to to partner with the Smiths and leading a new city group. Um, I encourage you to go sign up for that. Um, But they have a, a young boy named Lucas, and it's my pleasure to welcome Tim to the stage this morning. Would you give him a welcome? All right. Thank you, Mark. Um, I wasn't nervous, but now that I know that I'm representing my city group as we launch city groups again and we have to start over again, now I'm a little clammy, but that's all right. 
So uh, around four to five weeks ago, Mark shared with us from John 14, and he said that there were calming statements that Jesus was making to his anxious disciples, and he said, quote, Mark, when you know that everything is going to be okay, you don't have to be troubled. And we see similar sentiment that Jesus says in verse 33 with, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. Sounds nice, right? So we can get out early, go find the sermon from four weeks ago, listen to that, and we'll just have a nice lunch. But verse 33 continues, in the world you will have tribulation. So which is it? Peace or tribulation? And if you look at the phrasing, as some commentators have suggested, Jesus offers the possibility of peace but promises trouble. And if you're anything like me, you may find yourself having a bit of an antithetical response to the calming statements that Jesus is proclaiming. Instead of finding peace, I struggle to find it. I can acknowledge that the eternal blessings will await because of what Jesus did and has promised, but like real-time life right now can feel very rough. If Jesus told me not to be anxious, but I am anxious, where does that leave me? Do I not have enough faith? Am I taking his words too literally? Am I not praying the right way or for the right thing? Am I ever going to feel the peace that Jesus actually calls me towards in this life, or are they just sweet words I can hope for in the future? In some ways, these calming words that Jesus is providing his disciples and me, by proxy, only increase my doubt in myself, in what Jesus wants to do in me, and in what my future holds in this world. And so the question that I'd like to ask and ask us to consider this morning is how do our current struggles and problems, many of which Mark aptly prayed about this morning, weigh against this eternal peace and blessing that await us. Jesus certainly had some more things to say to his disciples before he departed them, and I think he has more things to say to us on how to deal with the current amid the future. Uh, before I begin, though, let's, let's pray again. Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. Father, we have trouble. Um, Only yesterday, uh, our brothers and sisters out west with all the rain and the flooding, we see that every single day, locally and abroad. Uh, But Father, I pray that through our trouble, we will find your peace, and it will bring peace to our hearts. In your name I pray, amen. So I would argue, as we've been talking about the last few weeks, that Jesus' central mission to his disciples in these past few chapters has been to allow them to deal with his pending death, but also offer hope about his also pending resurrection to come. Now, being on this side of history, we know what happens. Um, however, Jesus' uh, offerings still can give us peace in a few ways that I want to talk about today through John's text. So I'm going to share three ways that Jesus' resurrection can still offer us peace now, today. Uh, The first point I want to talk about is that the resurrection changes the narrative focus for our life. It's a bit wordy, so I'll repeat it and give you some time to to note, right? 
Jesus' resurrection changes the narrative focus for our life. I want to start at the beginning of our passage in verse 16 again. As Jesus says, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again a little while, then you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father... So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are saying yourselves, what I meant by saying, a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me. Lots of those, right? In verse 16, you will see me no longer, and again you will see me. We know Jesus is referring to his upcoming arrest, betrayal, death, and resurrection, But as the verses that follow show, the disciples are still very much confused, despite the fact that multiple times in the preceding chapters, Jesus references his own death and the fact that he will leave them. In verse 18, when it says that the disciples were saying, that verbiage, that grammar is actually a little hint to us. Uh, It's in the imperfect tense suggesting that this entire diatribe was an ongoing conversation with natural stopping and starting points. Sometimes when we're reading scripture, uh, especially these verses where it's Jesus saying a lot of things in a row, it's easy for us to think about this as like one big sermon that he's giving from start to stop. Um, But as Mark alluded to a few weeks ago, it's maybe a little bit more apt to think about this conversation as being a long story in multiple rooms along multiple routes Maybe they are on their way walking to the garden in Gethsemane. Jesus stops and turns, says something puzzling, keeps walking, and listens behind him as the disciples are chattering among themselves and casting doubt to each other. Whatever the situation was, Jesus knows their confusion, and verse 19 confirms this at least some. He reads it, and he knows that this is the time to offer the clarity that they need, on what will become a very difficult few days for them. So he speaks very bluntly in verse 20. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. I feel as though we often give the disciples a bad rap uh, when we talk about how they abandon uh, Jesus uh, when he gets arrested. Like, didn't they know this was going to happen? Uh, Weren't they prepared? Couldn't they have been a little bit more brave? Uh, We have to remember how difficult this would have been for the disciples. The whole town there for Passover would have been obnoxiously cheering for Jesus' crucifixion. So step back, think about that for a second. Imagine you are a fanboy or fangirl, and you go to a midnight showing to fill in the blank Uh, Star Wars, Marvel, whatever movie it might be, right? And the said villain gets killed by the said villain, and the whole crowd erupts in joy at the defeat. The entire town is erupting in joy for Jesus being murdered. And the disciples can only watch and think to themselves what is going on. This man who took a chance on us is gone. This man who we put all of our hope in, who made us feel worthy is dead. This man that we believed was the Messiah, the literal son of God, hung up like a common criminal. Is he who he said he was? What happens to us? Are we next? 
How can I bear to show my face again to these people and my family? And yet notice that verse 20 continues, your sorrow will turn into joy. And Jesus uses verses 21 and 22 to describe a very appropriate analogy for us. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. It's a little understatement, but that's all right. Uh, But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers her anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. As a father, I've experienced this sensation to what I'm sure is the most minuscule of fractions as my wife did. And all through observation, right? It would work like this. Like I would see her and I'd see pain and anxiety and worry and confusion on her face. My brain would go, I've seen those signals before. I've heard that tone in her voice before. Be afraid. <laughs> but even though we have all of this technology now to help us, uh, Pregnancy is still mostly a nine and a half month journey through darkness. (laughs) All right, like we have ultrasounds and epidurals and C-sections and genetic screening, all of these ways in which modern medicine has seemed to calm our anxieties about the process, but yet we still question and are confused and are worried throughout. Is he or she okay? Are they kicking? Am I in labor? Um, Do we go to the hospital now? When is this going to end Are we going to make it all the way through? And if we travel back mentally in time and try to squint at what the whole process would have looked like for first century women, (laughs) uh, how much more anxiety and anguish and pain would there have been? But what's going on here psychologically? Um, As as Mark said, I do teach psychology and neuroscience. I'm probably going to weave that far too much into my, my message today. In class, we'll talk about something called the opponent process theory, which simply means that when we have these massive swings in emotion uh, from sorrow to joy, for example, uh, it helps us to try to explain it. It's, It's why you go from abject terror when you jump out of a plane to elation when you land on the ground. Sometimes we had, like, parachute, right? Like, you didn't just, okay. Uh, Sometimes we blame these things on adrenaline rushes, right? That there's something different in our body that's happening that we're interpreting. But the reality of the situation is that your physiology, your body's signals have not changed. Your blood is still pumping as fast as possible through your veins. Adrenaline is in high, high number. What has changed is the context from danger to safety. With a change in scenery, our brains create an immediate switch in how they appraise or interpret what's going on within the body. With new information, our brain goes, wait, 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 wait. That's not fear. I'm happy. And I kind of think that's what's happening here. The baby's arrival is a signal to us to switch our interpretation from sorrow to joy. Amid all of these negative emotions and pain surrounding childbirth, the sudden appearance of a screaming, red-faced newborn signals to our brains that all is okay for a moment in the world. And this unbearable pain and anxiety can give way to unmistakable joy. We'll see directly in the Gospels the despair of the disciples turned on its head when Jesus appears to them. With new information that Jesus is alive and well, the sorrow can only change to joy. However, where we often struggle, or at least where I tend to struggle, 
is to remember that if we use this childbirth analogy and push it forward a little bit, all isn't just okay because the birth was a success. Uh, we know as parents that we have the literal rest of our children's lives to be anxious about every single thing that can possibly happen to them, no matter what age they are. And I only have a two-year-old, so I'm just imagining in the future, right? And so what happens to our joy then when the rest of our lives still feels like it's fueled by anxiety? Was it momentary or fleeting? For the disciples, right, Jesus' resurrection was a relief, but the rest of their lives was not peachy. They were not in paradise yet. There is still uncertainty. There is still persecution. There is still death. And we know that just because we believe in Christ, uh, everything is not rosy right now, despite what awaits us. So why I think the opponent process theory that I teach about in class can be helpful for us is because this heel turn in emotion that our brain does is entirely dependent on how we focus what's going on with the story. I use in class, it's like we wear a pair of glasses that we can change the lenses of, right? Maybe from blue lenses to yellow lenses. All of a sudden, your world is seen in a completely different light. With Jesus' betrayal, arrest, and crucifixion, the lenses through which the disciples must have seen the world was despair and pessimism and disappointment. As we've said, all is lost. But with Jesus' resurrection, the lens through which the disciples would have now seen the world could be hope and victory. Despite the trouble that comes, it's under the umbrella of this entirely new context, the story of victory, not defeat. And I think the challenge for us, then, when we think about how this applies to our current troubles that uh, face us every day, is to continually remind ourselves of what Jesus' resurrection ultimately accomplished, to put on our resurrection glasses, so to speak. We will have disappointment and trouble and pain and sorrow at every corner, but Jesus' resurrection was a narrative switch and a cornerstone upon which the interpretation of our entire lives can be built. We can have peace amid trouble because we know that Jesus rose again and promised to take us to heaven with him. Simply put, anxiety and fear in the world cannot stand strong against the truth of the resurrection. Now, this doesn't mean that we're good at it, or it doesn't mean that it's the first impulse we go to, and it certainly doesn't mean that it's easy. And absolutely, the devil will try to change the lenses on our glasses when we're asleep to the pessimism and despair one as many times as possible in hopes that we will forget the truth that the resurrection offers us. But what we have to remind ourselves is that all is in the process of being made new because Jesus came back. And the terrible things that happen to us and our loved ones and to people we don't even know all across the world are just temporary skin, not the things that will define us, but the things that we will shed one day so we can put on like sweet clothes. That's why I imagine heaven is it's just awesome digs. Right? As verse 22 concludes, Jesus says, no one will take your joy from you. This world, your flesh, the devil may try, but with our minds set on the resurrection and the cornerstone of Jesus' resurrection. It cannot. So my first point that I was 
trying to articulate was that this, the resurrection of Christ will change the narrative focus for our life. It changes how we are allowed to interpret the troubles that come with us into victory. The second point that I want to offer is that the resurrection also opened us up to God's will. I'll say that again one more time. That Jesus' resurrection opens us up to God's will. What am I talking about there? Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 23, shall we? Jesus says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So a quick aside, if you weren't here, um, go back a couple of weeks, uh, about two and three weeks ago, Mark preached about this idea of praying in Jesus's name. Uh, And when he says this, it does not mean that prayer is now like a vending machine where you push the right button and all the candy pops out, uh, but instead is an intentional action of aligning yourself with God's will, of abiding in Christ. And it's more about learning what to pray for than just getting what your prayers offer. Kind of like how Jesus told us somewhat counterintuitively we feel to pray for our enemies. So keep that in mind, set it aside for a second, um, as we pick back up in verse 24. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech, The hour is coming where I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but I will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. When you look at the entire history of God and his people up to this point, uh, a continual theme was separation. Adam and Eve separated from the garden, uh, the tabernacle, and later the temple, uh, with physical separation of an isolated holy place for God, with curtains and things to keep the people out, in a way. It was very difficult to physically approach God the Father because of our sin. So the disciples did not ask for anything in Jesus' name because they didn't think to approach the Father. They just asked Jesus. He was right there. God was unapproachable, especially to them, they would feel, because they're just normal guys, not even priests who would be allowed in those rooms of the temple. And so what I have to remember sometimes is one of the most important things that occurs with Jesus' death is that the curtain in the temple that physically separated God's presence from his people tore from top to bottom the metaphorical and physical separation of God came down. God could now be approached again because Jesus' sacrifice made people holy enough in their sin to do so. And so for the disciples and for us, Jesus is clear about how this accessibility occurs. Verse 27 says that the Father loves us because of our belief in Jesus. Simply put, when we believe in Christ, that he was who he said he was, God becomes accessible. Okay, wait, let's let that sink in for a second. I'm going to put on my inner Levi. Let's go, okay. When we believe in Jesus, God, the infinite, eternal, creator God of the universe, universe, is accessible. And so without the access, what hope do we expect our prayers to have? But with that access... 
God hears. We see in the apostles' lives throughout the New Testament that they clearly understood that their prayers had power, that the evidence of Jesus' promise is very much so apparent. And the application for us should be equally simple. We have access to the same power that they did. Our prayers can be answered. We just have to pray for the right thing, right? But if you're like me, you, you can understand what it feels like that your prayers don't seem to have that much power. And the disappointment in that can only be stronger and grow when it feels like you're really trying to align your prayers with what you think God's will is. Maybe you've prayed for a child, so you want to raise them to fear the Lord, but it doesn't seem to come. Or you've prayed for a loved one to be healed so that God's glory could be proclaimed and displayed in that miracle, but the healing doesn't come. Or maybe you just pray for a significant other so that as one flesh you can more powerfully witness the love of God to others through your union, just as Christ loved the church, but you remain single. Or you pray for God to purify your own heart, to rid you of very specific temptations and sins so you can actually feel like you're following Jesus more closely, yet temptation and disobedience remain. Or what could be more in line with God's will than praying for the heart of a loved one, a friend, a family member, a neighbor, or a co-worker to be turned towards God? And you even step out and obey and proclaim the gospel, but nothing seems to occur. And your mind starts to go to all these wrong places. Maybe I don't have enough faith, or maybe I'm not praying hard enough or consistent enough, and the shame can start to overwhelm you because it becomes your fault that something didn't happen because you couldn't free yourself up enough for true prayer. And when you're faced with sometimes decades of unanswered prayer, and you look up at God, that was a weird phrasing, and you look up at God, and you say, do you want me to quit? Where is the answer in Jesus' words here? Honestly, I don't really know. Sometimes I feel like I'm in the middle of that stage my whole life. And especially right now, I can feel like I'm in one of those seasons. But what I do know is that Jesus tells us to keep praying. And I have to believe that when we are true in that discipline, that our eyes will eventually open up to what God has in store for us, even if his answer seems quite impossible to be no. Again, in uh, psychology in class, we'll talk about a concept called cognitive dissonance. Um, it's a fancy word that basically just means when mentally we're stuck between a rock and a hard place, something has to give because there's too much tension. And usually the thing that gives is the only thing that's able to. Let me give you a concrete example to hopefully make that make sense. I can have a very strong opinion. Cake is disgusting. It is awful. It is gross. Then I attend a wedding and I go on to eat like two or three slices of cake. Can I continue to say that I hate cake? That's gross. I can't change my behavior that I just did, but I can shift my opinion. I don't want to be a hypocrite, right? So cake is okay, I guess. And many times, our attitudes are the things that change because we can't change what we've done or what our behaviors actually are. And so if you believe that God's sovereignty means that his will is inevitable, it's going to happen, and immutable, that it is not changeable, 
and I do. There we go. Then when faced with a steady answer that seems to be in opposition to the desires in our prayers, the only thing that can change is us. Maybe that means that the prayer itself will change. We'll learn to pray for something new or different. Or maybe it's just that God wants us to keep praying, but the expectation on what will be the answer or when the answer will come will change. I think either way, the key is, is that praying steadfastly for both the things that we want and for God's will to be done in tandem, that this will slowly start to peel the layers of what God's will will actually be for our lives. And as hard of a pill as that can be many times to swallow, I think that's our call. Or at least that's what feels like my call right now. Um, You've heard this phrase, right, in Christian circles, less of me, more of you. Um, And if that's kind of our life's continual journey, uh, then the process of less of me, more of you, looks like continuing to figure out which of our desires match God's and which don't as much, and adjusting them accordingly. So I started down this road talking about why opening us up to God's will, why the curtain being torn, God is now accessible, why this offers us peace. I haven't really gotten there yet, right? So I'm just kidding. Verse 24 says that when we ask and receive, our joy may be full. When we go through the painful process of shedding ourselves of ourselves in prayer and aligning with God's will instead, the only thing left is joy and peace. Sometimes our desires are actually the things that weigh us down, and by stripping ourselves of them, we can feel the light. That's Jesus' promise, and as much as I struggle with it, um, it's also what I know I have to believe is true. So uh, the first point that I wanted to say um, is that Jesus' resurrection changes the narrative focus for our life. The second point was that it offers or opens us up to God's will. Um, The third point, this is my shortest one, uh, (laughs) is uh, that I wanted to say that Jesus' resurrection is stronger than our weakness. Uh, one more time, this will be the simplest one to write down, uh, that Jesus' resurrection is stronger than our weakness. Let's keep reading in verse 28. Jesus says, I came from the Father and have come into the world. Now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know, what you know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, but in words, do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming. Indeed, it has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Uh, To recap, although the disciples proclaim their belief very strongly, Jesus is quick to express doubt in said belief and proceeds to tell them that they will abandon him in his hour of need. However, Jesus follows this up with our concluding verse of this chapter in 33. He says, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. 
if we follow this narrative stream from these last few verses, what I think is happening is Jesus is telling them, you will face trials in this world very soon, in fact. In practice, these trials will cause you to doubt, and you will respond in weakness, and you will abandon your faith. Now, this weakness had the potential to derail like the entire mission, but Jesus knew all would be okay. Um, He overcame the world with his resurrection, and because he was stronger than death, he was also stronger than the disciples' weakness. For the disciples, it's a way of saying that no matter how many times that they would mess up, no matter how useless that they would feel, no matter how they would feel that their flesh and weakness was at the forefront of everything that they were doing, Jesus was offering the power to overcome it. His resurrection meant that they didn't need to have power. Jesus had it for them. And for us, it means that through all of our many failures and doubts and weaknesses, Jesus overcomes our shortcomings too. We don't have to be able. God already is. He is stronger than our fears and weakness. And as Jesus suggests all the way back in John 14, if you remember, um, the peace he gives us overcomes all fear. Uh, One quick example or story uh, before we go. Um, As Mark said, we have a toddler at home. He has these moments where we're playing with something. Really, it could be anything. I'll just use like a toy truck for an example because he's all about it. Um, And it goes like this. He breaks some part of the truck that can easily be fixed, but he tries to do it and he struggles with it. And he starts to, you know, bubble over a bit. (laughs) And he starts to become an emotional mess. And he starts to do a tantrum because he can't fix the thing that he broke. He just doesn't have the finger skills yet, right? And I'm sitting on the floor, and I watch the series of events of Furl. And like any man in literally any situation, I decide the best thing that I can do is to enter in and fix it for him. That's not what he wants. His tantrum escalates because he wants to fix it, not daddy. But the problem is that he can't. So he melts down where he's literally just sobbing and shoving my hand away and kicking and saying, no, daddy, no. Literally, he says that maybe every day to me. (laughs) My son, when faced with a trial that he himself cannot overcome, naturally is overwhelmed by the stress of it all. But he also refuses help from his father, who certainly can help. Is this where I say that parenting teaches us a lot about how we treat God, our Father? God, I can do it. Stop trying to help. I've got this under control. Maybe we don't say it like a teenager or a petulant toddler, but we sure act like it sometimes and pray like it sometimes or don't even pray at all because we've got it. Our trials may look very different from the disciples' in their day. For us, our trials can be enormous but they can also be simple daily ones. As having to wake up every morning and just be Christ-centered in the things that we do every day. Maybe it's our job or our schooling, the relationships that we have, the children that we're called to parent, etc., etc., etc. And when we attempt to do it all ourselves, it turns out that our, more often than not, our weakness and our flesh bubble up to the surface, and come front and center. As a good dad, I will (laughs) saddle up beside my son, and I will calmly say, buddy, it's okay. 
I, I know this is making you upset, and I'm happy to help you fix it. I'll just wait patiently while you calm yourself down and are soothed by my presence. No, I don't do that. What I do uh, is the second he pushes my hands away, I, uh, and he screams at me, I respond back with, fine, you think you can do it? Try. Keep trying and fail. And then I get my phone out, and I check my email that I just checked 30 seconds ago, and I know there's not one, but I don't care because I don't want to deal with him right now. <laughs> Even though I can be a very bad dad, uh, the thing that we need to remind ourselves is that God is the perfect father. Our Heavenly Father looks at us, watches us try to succeed in our own flesh and weakness, and he says quietly, don't you realize I overcame all of this already? I really think that sometimes he's just waiting patiently for us to look up and acknowledge our helplessness um, so he can give us his helpfulness. And yet so often, uh, I'll at least speak for myself, um, I can be so prideful that it becomes hard to even acknowledge my weakness and seek his strength every day. I believe I'm out of time, so I'm going to call the band back up on stage. Uh, so I'm going to close with this. Uh, I don't know how uh, this teaching has been responding to you today. It's been in my mind for about a month now. So what I do know is that in preparing for this over the past few weeks and reading these scriptures over and over again, um, I found myself calling on myself to try some things out. Um, in light of Jesus' resurrection. So I, I hope you'll join me. Um, so my first point was that uh, the resurrection changed the narrative focus for our life. When you feel the pangs of life's disappointment, remind yourself that the theme of the story is resurrection, redemption, not hopelessness. Put on your resurrection lenses. Remember to continually see the world as being in the process of being made new, not turning to ash in front of us. Second point, he's opening us up to God's will. Pray. Don't stop praying. Don't give up praying for the things that you think are aligned with God's will. But don't be tone deaf either. Try to continually ask God and yourself what in your desires are just for you that you need to let go of in search of something a little bit greater. Third point was he's stronger than our weaknesses. Whew. Wake up every morning and come to God with your day. Acknowledge that you can't do it on your own, whatever you have, job, school, parenting, just having to be with another human being. Start your day by telling God that you don't have it under control and that you need God to guide, encourage, and overcome you. Then hold on to that mentality and take God with you through the day. Father, we are bad at this, um, but I pray that in our weakness to believe, in our weakness to pray, in our weakness just to seek you and seek your face, that we would find strength in you anyway. Lord, I believe that you overcome everything that I struggle with. I pray, and I pray for my friends, that we would find strength in you, and that strength would overcome us. We give you this day. In your name we pray.